Welcome to the Founders for Good podcast, hosted by myself, Craig Turner. Join me as I speak to the most inspirational founders of four good startups, the people that are leading the way when it comes to solving the world's most pressing issues. I explore their journey as founders and their best kept secrets on how to grow a four good startup and how to hire top people. My hope is that this will inspire you to be part of the solution and do your bit in making the world a better place. Thanks for tuning in to the Founders for Good podcast. Nam Sandhu is the CEO and co-founder of Vayu. Nam grew up in Bombay, India and saw firsthand the impact of waste and climate change which inspired her to pursue a career in sustainability. After working for management consultancies and heading up sustainability for Zalando and Arcadia, two things became very clear. One, there was a huge opportunity in the retail sector to make a dent in climate change, with the sector being responsible for 25% of global emissions. And two, the biggest blocker for retailers becoming more sustainable was a lack of accurate and real-time data to make better decisions for the planet. So, Nam founded Value to solve that problem. Value helps retailers calculate their carbon emissions in real-time, providing actionable insights into where they can make positive changes and helping them communicate their decarbonisation story to their customers. Hey Nam, thanks for coming on the show. How are you today? I'm good, Greg. Thanks for having me. Super excited to be here. My pleasure. So um, I was doing my research as always and uh, realised from an early age, it looked like you were pretty set on a career in sustainability. Um, so just wondered, you know, what, what attracted you to the space originally? Yes, yeah, so I am originally from Bombay, now Mumbai in India, and grew up in kind of Bombay in the 80s and 90s. So a very kind of dirty, very gr- grungy city and essentially came from a world which was a little bit more privileged and noticed that we had an opportunity there and that you could see that there was a lot of change needed and kind of got into kind of more activism quite early on. So with my friends, we started an NGO when we were 13 that focused on kind of the environment and wanting to kind of see what we could do with the city. We started the first recycling program in like one part of the city where we worked with the local government to try to get at least wet and dry garbage separated, which at the time was like 94, 95. So quite early on. So essentially got started and got into that. And I think that just kind of set up the trend for the rest of my life, because once I had kind of started that, it felt like that had to be what my work would be as I kind of went to college and graduated and was looking at things to do. So it feels like where I came from set the trend for what would be, I think, the rest of my life. Yeah, I think that's pretty powerful as well. If at the age of 13, you can kind of realize the impact you can have as like a, an individual, like a small group of people and that, what, what positive change you can drive. Um, and then, as you said, you know, that, that was your pathway into sustainability. And then, you, you know, you studied um, in sustainability. You, you then worked kind of both sides of the fence in the sense of, I think, management consultancy and like advisory work, as well as internally for huge names like Zalando and Arcadia Group. I wondered actually, what, what were some of the more like shocking things that you discovered in those roles? Like what were some things that you saw or came across that you maybe weren't expecting? So I think, so I've seen, I think the most interesting thing has been kind of the space and the evolution of the space. So I think from a sustainability perspective, where we started and kind of, if you look back to when you were talking to bigger businesses in 2006 and 2005, what the conversations you were having were. And what conversations you started to have kind of post 2019, I think that's been one of the most surprising things is just the uptake and going from you kind of pushing management and pushing teams and having conversations and trying to move businesses, both as a management consultant as and in-house, you're always the one kind of saying, 
we need to do more. We, we were the change makers in businesses. We wanted businesses to do better and do more. And I think that kind of switch happened, I think, post-2019, which is probably the most obvious thing that comes to mind, which is when everything kind of switched and it became much more a business imperative. And businesses and management started to ask the questions and started to say, we need you in the room for these conversations. We need to think about this differently. We need to be proactive. And I think for me, that's been kind of a pretty dramatic shift, having worked for a really long time on the back kind of end to then being kind of the business pushing and wanting to do things. And I think probably for me, that was the most dramatic. And I think when we when we started early on working and coming into businesses that had nothing in place at all, both from an ethical perspective and an environmental perspective and setting up those processes and kind of how much pushback you got and how much work you had to do to get things moving. And I think that's been what's super different now. Yeah, no, I can imagine. And, and do you think that shift has been driven by consumers more now? Like it's, it's the, the businesses having to react to consumer demand or is it is actually the businesses themselves are starting to really care about how they operate or a bit both? I think, I think probably a bit of both. I think the consumer started to, I think the media started to talk about climate change and kind of sustainability and the impact of business quite a lot. So I think that had a pretty big impact on kind of customers and consumers and how they thought about it and started to demand and ask businesses more questions. But I think businesses also feel it now in different ways. So not limited to just kind of, we need to do good or we need to operate differently, but resources are getting constrained. Prices are switching. Kind of express shipping over the last couple of years has gotten really expensive. So there has been, I think, business push to do more as well. That isn't just consumer-led, but there's also how they need to think about themselves as a business. Same with circularity. Circular businesses seem to be doing better, performing better. So I think the consumer demand has also switched kind of a lot of the business environment as well. Nice. And when it just to chat a little bit about kind of sustainability within the context of businesses, yeah, in in, in your own words, in your opinion, like what makes a business sustainable? <laughs> It's a great question and a, and a tough one to answer. So I think the, 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 the sustainable business is probably like a counterintuitive term because business is there to, for, for growth and, and to expand. And I think traditionally those things haven't, haven't found a way to meet in the middle somewhere. And I think that's been part of the problem and why you've seen less of sustainable businesses. I think superimposing kind of sustainability on the top of a business clearly hasn't worked. We've seen it hasn't worked. And I think it needs to be kind of much more embedded in how a business thinks about what it's there to do and how it does those things. So I think saying something is a sustainable business just probably isn't the right language at all. I think we probably need to switch the narrative there and maybe talk a lot more about businesses that are thinking things differently or doing better or doing good or things like that. But I think fundamentally, you're not sustainable as a business, especially not as a business who's selling things and products to customers unless you're doing something quite dramatically different. So I think there it's just much more about how do you embed it. And I came in as a management consultant a lot with businesses trying to kind of superimpose these ideas on a business and say, how do we layer it on top? And it doesn't work. It needs to come in from what is the thing that you're doing as a business? What is the product you're creating? And how do you create that product differently? How do you create that product for what happens to it after its life is over? And how do you think about everything collectively. So I think it's quite different for product-led businesses probably and software and companies like that as well, right? So for us, I think because we don't sell product and we sell software, I think it has different implications versus kind of a retailer or a product-led business that it looks quite different as well. Yeah. 
They, they definitely. And, and to talk about kind of specifically within the retail sector, um, like how big is the opportunity right now to like make a dent on climate change within retail? And like the second part of the question is like, what, what are the biggest contributing factors to climate change within the retail sector? Yeah. So in terms of what is the opportunity? So I think the kind of current studies say 25% of global emissions come from, from the retail sector. And that probably includes transportation, maritime, goods moving around and kind of collectively out as a retail sector. So I think that's a huge opportunity. And I think within that 25%, very little work has been done with the data and the analytics in terms of kind of understanding how much optimization potential is there. So I think very much the focus has been kind of, we know climate change is here and we know there's things we need to do, but we don't have the data to understand what is the reduction saving potential available. So what we're seeing as we start to work with businesses there's a lot of opportunity to optimize to lower the impact of these businesses that hasn't been fully optimized yet. And we see kind of optimization in two different ways. So one is kind of how does the business optimize its own operation? So how does the business change its processes, change how it designs products to how it delivers products and what are the optimization opportunities in there? But I think there's a lot of optimization opportunities with customers as well that hasn't been kind of communicated. Customers don't know what they should do. You hear a lot from people, I want to do better. I want to recycle. I want to do things, but I don't know what that is. So I think there's a lot of reduction opportunity with kind of communicating and giving customers information on which delivery option they should select, what they should do with their products after they've used them, what they should do with their packaging. So I think there's a huge opportunity, not just on the business side, but also with businesses giving that data to customers as well. So we see kind of both of those opportunities as not having been fully explored because there isn't much data available for kind of what good and what better looks like. So I think that's kind of the first question that you asked. And then maybe if you want to repeat the second yeah, question, Craig. Of course. Yeah, the, the second one was like within the retail sector, like what are some of the biggest like contributing factors to climate change? Like if, if it's like supply chain, the materials being used, et cetera. Yeah, so we see if you're an e-commerce business, we see kind of three primary areas. We see that as the products, so the kind of products that you sell, which includes the supply chain, the manufacturing, the raw materials. And I think whether you're e-com or kind of brick and mortar, we see the products being a huge contributor to the carbon footprint, absolutely. And then if you're an e-com business, we also see packaging and deliveries. So kind of the packaging of the products and so not just the packaging, the primary packaging, as we say, but the secondary product packaging. So how the product comes in in a box or a sleeve or something like that. So that packaging and then the delivery of how it gets from the warehouse to the customer as a huge part of the footprint. So if you're e-com and we see product packaging and deliveries, and if you're brick and mortar, we see primarily product and then packaging as well, because you're still getting packaging in store and then a lot of other things, but those being kind of the biggest contributors to the carbon impact. Yeah, it makes sense. And when you start to show this data to the retailers, are they like shocked by the amount of opportunity they have to to change things positively? Or are they kind of like, actually, they, they kind of know that's happening, but they're just kind of been ignoring it <laughs> without the data to look at? No, I think sustainability is inherently complex and there's a lot of trade-offs. And I think those trade-offs are hard to understand without data because when you when you do one thing, you probably have an impact on something else because nothing, there isn't a black and white, there's always this gray space. And I think actually they are really surprised because that gray space is exactly where the optimization is possible, where you're able to then use data and technology to evaluate those options and understand what are the trade-offs and what are the right trade-offs to be making. So for example, we see a lot of businesses that ship globally. And once you understand the volume of them shipping globally, if you set up kind of a warehouse in another country where you ship to a lot, inherently you would think that would 
you the cost of kind of moving the logistics to that country and then shipping it to the customers from there would be a large part of the footprint. But actually, even including that, still getting the warehouse in place and optimizing still has a lot of positive impact. So it's really hard for businesses to understand without data. So we've seen businesses being really surprised when they get the data and when they understand that there are huge opportunities that feel like they're not they don't compete with business as well. So I think that's kind of one thing that's really surprising is sometimes those opportunities are complementary to business as well and not they are not um, competing with it. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's really, really interesting. And I guess kind of going back to your your journey then, so obviously you've seen kind of the shift in trends, you've seen how businesses are, are now much more kind of actively looking to be more responsible, trying to be more sustainable. And, and you'd obviously have this kind of 15-year career within sustainability before you set up your business. What, what was the point where you decided like now is the time to do something about this and, and like found your own company, which could properly help companies calculate their footprint and, and do something about it? Yeah, so my last role was at Zalando, which is an e-commerce market, fashion marketplace in Europe. And I had um, worked a lot with e-commerce and sustainability. And then the pandemic hit and I had I had quit my job and essentially saw in the pandemic kind of the impact that e-com was having. So I think we saw it. I live in Berlin and we saw DHL trucks everywhere. We saw kind of, we have collective um, trash. So we saw the packaging waste was out of control. You kind of saw all of that and you thought, oh my, if this continues at this pace and rate, which maybe digital isn't growing as fast as it did in the pandemic, but it's still been growing pretty aggressively year on year. And you kind of think through what does all of this consumption mean and at the scale and what impact does it even just have on our lives in cities, in the way we move around, on infrastructure, on the inability, like how does this work? And you kind of think that through. And and I realized that there are sustainability teams like myself that are really committed to trying to make impact in businesses. There's a lot of people in these larger companies who want to make change, but just lack the data to understand. As I said, what are the trade-offs with the choices that you make? I think that's one of the hardest things to do, even with the best of intentions. If you don't understand the trade-offs, you can't make better decisions. And I said, that has to be something that businesses understand faster. And once we can give them the data to be able to make those changes, at least they understand the impact that they're making. And if you choose to change your box color and you know it's worse for the environment, at least you knowingly do that rather than unknowingly do that. And I think that's part of kind of change management as you do things and as you see it again and again, maybe the first three times you still do it, but maybe the fourth or the fifth time you think, let me change. So I think it's also part of how do you change a system and how do you kind of give people the ability to do that? Yeah, makes makes complete sense. And, and I'm sure it's kind of obvious now, <laughs> but I'm going to ask anyway, can you can you give us an overview of what Value does and, and yeah, what, what the business is? Yeah, so we are focused on helping retailers track and cut their carbon emissions in real time. And the real time element is especially important because retail businesses change quite a lot. From, from month to month, from season to season, they move to new markets, they add new verticals. And traditionally, the way businesses calculate carbon is they look back 12 months, they finish the full financial year, they look at the data, they process the data, and then they calculate the carbon emissions. And what usually happens is once you get that data, usually the business is already transitioned to doing many new things. So that data gets out of date really, really fast. So essentially, what we've built is software that gives you an update daily on your carbon emissions. So when you add new products, when you go to new markets, when you do sales seasons, you can start to understand impact as you're doing making business decisions. And that data then powers what we have is the reductions in the scenarios, which is how do you understand 
business decisions and impacts before you make them. So if you want to change your boxes, how do you understand what that means for your business and how do you automate all of that? So businesses have those tools on a consistent basis. So they're able to make decisions all the time rather than at one point in time, but rather consistently all of the time. Very, very cool. <laughs> Sounds very complicated though. So is, is, is like the biggest challenge so far been on the, the technical side because you're having to draw from so many different data sources, I guess, econ businesses, I imagine have some very horrible old systems or maybe don't even have some systems. Has that been the biggest challenge, like trying to get the, a good enough quality of data real time to be able to then drive these insights to the, to the retailer? Yeah, so a lot is around data quality and what we get from the retailer, but a large part is also around the carbon calculation itself and the lack of data and what's been done in the space. So I think life cycle assessments or LCAs are quite new or they've been around for a while, but not at the scale that they needed to be. So a lot of data gaps are also there from a modeling perspective in terms of how do you calculate the carbon of something. And a huge part of what we've been working on is the modeling of how you do that. How do you understand carbon emissions? How do you model different product categories and things like that? That hasn't been done before. So I think it's both. It's one, how do you get the data quality to where you need it? But our focus isn't really necessarily and always getting to like 100% accuracy in the calculation, but what can you work with that can already start to inform reductions? Because our focus is really how do you help a business overall reduce their impact? And you can do that sometimes with lesser quality data. You can still understand where does the carbon sit? So that kind of lens is really the focus. And then the second is how do we get the best quality of calculations to then inform exactly that to say from your supply chain, this is where the hotspots are. This is where you're most able to optimize and this is what you should focus on because i think that's a huge part of the challenge right where should we focus if we were to switch something what is the thing that we should do first and that's that's something that's never been done in an automated way so getting scientific papers and things like that in ways that we need them has been also challenging yeah i can imagine and and to explore like the the product and how it works a bit more so as i understand it like a retailer will will connect the system or or use your api to then get kind of the accurate data flowing through and they have access to this real-time dashboard in terms of the data they they see on the dashboard how granular can you get like does it break it down to like different business areas and then within that it can kind of say like you know there's wastage here there's opportunity here and like in terms of the behaviors you want to drive those retailers in the sense of making positive changes? Is it a case of trying to then tie back the changes, not only to like, you know, impacts on the planet, but also actually like ROI in terms of this will save you money as well as be a better decision for you in terms of the planet? Yeah, and absolutely, exactly. As you said, Greg, we connect into the systems and everything you said is on point. So that's essentially what we do. And then kind of we can get as granular as a business wants to get. So the way we process the data and manage it from a calculation perspective is super detailed and granular. So for us, what that means is based on the retailer and what what level of complexity they're at and where modular may be helpful to say as well. So if they really want to focus on supply chain and logistics, We can do just that. If they really want to focus on product, we can do just that. So we can also come in and focus on parts of the business that are critical. Or sometimes they just want to start with one thing, do it well, and kind of move on and take a more kind of a slower approach to like focusing on one and then starting with something else. So essentially there we can get as granular as they would like, and we can get super granular. And what's the most important part of kind of the tooling is essentially how we then process the data consistently all of the time and are able to help them generate scenarios to understand the impact 
before they make the business decision. So because we're doing it on their volume and based on their data, for for one retailer, it might be their packaging has a lot of carbon saving potential. But for another retailer, it might be their last mile delivery or their product has way more because they, I don't know, create things made out of plastic from China. So it depends massively on the category, on what your footprint looks like. And we do that in an automated way, which means for every retailer, it looks really different. And the most important thing is identifying carbon saving potential. So where should they focus and what are the areas that they can focus? Because I think that's been a huge part of the problem is you kind of try to fix everything at once and then you're kind of not able to focus in on anything. But this is really about how do you understand where is the biggest impact you can have? And then, as you said, another layer that we're adding on is where is there also, where does it save the business money? So something like e-commerce returns is a really good example of that. All e-commerce businesses want to lower their return rate. It has a big impact on kind of ROI and business, but it has a huge impact on kind of climate and carbon as well. So I think there are a lot of opportunities where there are synergies between the two as well. And highlighting those is really important because then it just makes business sense to do that anyway. Yeah, 100%. I guess my next question is that when it, when it comes to the products, I'm always keen to see from a founder perspective, like which metric are you most excited by? Like when you see that metric changing um, or, or like that you know, needle shifting on a certain metric within the product, like which one do you yeah, get most excited by? So for us, we, we calibrate to reductions. So total carbon reduction, that's the metric that's most exciting for us. And as a business, it's the thing that we track to. And the thing that's most interesting is how much carbon do we reduce or do we help businesses avoid? So how much carbon are we helping them lower or avoid? And that's kind of the big metric for us that we really focus on, which is probably quite different from the other businesses maybe that you speak to. But yeah, that's the ROI that's most interesting for us or the KPI rather. If you're listening and thinking, I'd love to work for a company like this, then you need to go to www.jobsforgood.io where they have the best jobs in four good companies. From climate change to social impact to green transport, you will be able to find the perfect job for you. Trust me. Check it out, www.jobsforgood.io. Now back to the podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. And then, um, as I'm sure you're very well aware of, like consumers are getting very aware with like greenwashing, um, especially like in e-commerce with some of the, how some products are... Um, you know, on the shelves and what they look like, and what they say they do versus how they actually work in the background. So I guess is what is another benefit of using value, the fact that it eliminates the ability to greenwash because there's so much transparency and accountability created for the retailer and, and then onwards also to like their customers. Yeah, absolutely. A huge part of what we do is kind of helping businesses navigate. And I think greenwashing is a double-edged sword, right? Because I think there's businesses that maybe do it with intent and there's businesses that do it without intent and they don't realize what they're doing is not showing the whole picture and sharing the right information. So a huge part of what we do is also educate businesses on how is the best way to share that data, what is the best way to be transparent and give your customers that data rather than just yeah, just showing information without the full picture. So a huge part of what we do is we've built communication guidelines. We are kind of working really closely with the businesses on what they should say, what they can and can't say, how to add caveats to make sure that it's robust and make sure they're being as transparent as they can with the information they share with their customers as well, especially information that influences buying decisions. So I think that's the most important, right? And that's where greenwashing gets really dangerous is where that kind of changes the way 
you choose to buy a product or which product you choose to buy. And I think it's really important that in those moments on sites, on screen, on when you're choosing, that that information is super transparent and clear to the customers in terms of what what it's based on. So that's a huge part of what we're doing as well. Yeah. And I guess it, again, come back to your point about data. Like if you don't have data, it's very hard to prove or show stuff. Whereas now, actually, if you're showing like real-time data, when a business does make changes, rather than saying like, we, you know, we've changed this part of our process, we can't really measure the, the impact it's had versus now where it's saying like, we've, we've changed this particular process and we can tell from data over the course of the last six months, it's had this impact, which we can now communicate to our customers through the value platform. Exactly. And another um, huge part of a piece of what we're doing, maybe just to add on that is essentially around tracking to net zero and science-based targets as well. So where businesses are basically setting targets and want to be able to track reductions credibly against those targets, that's a huge part of what we're doing because we're able to work in an automated way. We can also see if a business is changing things, if they are building scenarios and then changing certain parts of their business, then that can also be tracked in an automated way so they can start to understand what is the impact of these kind of decisions that we're making and how do we now credibly communicate that impact to customers as well on time on the different targets we've set. Yeah, love that. Uh, and then talk to you a little bit about fundraising. So I think you raised a really decent $11.5 million seed round earlier this year. Um, congrats. Um, I wondered, you know, how did you find that experience? And secondly, like, what advice would you give to other founders that are looking to raise their seed rounds? Yes. So um, we did our pre-seed round and then we did our seed round. And I think we learned a lot in terms of the fundraising process from run- one round to the other. And I think the thing that is the most important, and I, and I know everyone says that, is just choosing investors that kind of align with your values. And as a business that works specifically on climate, that was extremely important to us that we had investors that kind of aligned with what we wanted to do and weren't going to push us in a different direction or kind of chasing some other targets or just really understood our business. And we spent a lot of time speaking with investors kind of early on in the process, trying to understand what were their values, what did they care about, about the business that we were building, what was important to them, and also what they saw as the future for our business. Because I think that's really important as you fundraise is just making sure as you think about the future of your business, are the investors aligned in terms of what you would like to do and what they would like you to do. So I think that's super important. And I think, especially if you're in kind of an impact space, it's important to spend the time with the investors and make sure on the value side you are aligned. And if that means chatting to investors early on in the process or doing things differently, I think it's super important because, yeah, we, we're really happy with the choices that we made and they've been supportive and it's been hugely helpful to have investors were in your corner. And I think getting that kind of balance right is is tough and you need to spend the time with them to make sure that you are aligned. Very, very good advice. And um, I guess looking at the future for you, like what what are you really excited about that you're going to be working on? Like what what are the key bits in the roadmap for the next like year or two? So for us, it's expanding into different product categories is super exciting. So working, so we work with fashion right now and we've just expanded to consumer health and kind of growing the categories we work with is super exciting, but also very much improving and kind of iterating on the scenario building, the reduction features and seeing businesses start to communicate the reductions publicly is super exciting and kind of making those tools better and better and iterating on those is is amazing because that's kind of where we really see the optimization and you'll also start to see it 
live on a lot more product pages and a lot more customer experiences. So that's always when customers start to see the data, that's super exciting for us. Definitely. Definitely. And then to chat to you a little bit about you kind of you as a founder and some of your experiences and views, um, you know, I guess like we talked about it, like, you know, previous to value, you worked in some, some very large businesses, um, it was Orlando and Arcadia Group, some of the largest kind of like retail e-com businesses um, in Europe, if not the world. How did you find it going from like, you know, those larger established businesses to like founding your own business? Like, what was the biggest shock or surprise in, in the, the difference in the two? So I think it's a few things because I was a little bit later in my career, kind of going back to like really hands-on work and kind of the things that you have to do as an early stage founder was was different. And to remind myself that I had done this earlier in my career. So I think that was a big switch actually. And something nobody really talks about is when you go in in a later stage, when you've been kind of working for a long time, it's quite a switch to actually go back to to doing the things that you used to do early on. And I think the other I've worked as a consultant and I've always worked long hours, but I think the intensity and the pace is just, it never, it doesn't stop. And I think that's a little bit different from any other role, job, consultancy, anything that you do that has a lot of hours because there's always a dip. I think with founding a company, there is no dip. It's just like, a, and that's why everyone says, right, plan Don't like stop. it's a marathon because it really is and it doesn't stop ever. So I think <laughs> you hear that a lot, but when you actually experience it, it's quite different and quite intense. So I think that's been, yeah, the intensity is probably one of the things that's yeah most surprising, especially when you've worked a lot your whole life. You're like, yeah, I'm used to this. I've worked a lot. No. <laughs> yeah. No, no. But I think it is a good intensity in the sense of like, you, you really believe in what you're doing. So that, that kind of adds to the intensity in, in terms of like willingness to want it to be that intense, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think also makes you work harder, right? So it's not that the intensity is like superimposed on you, but you want to do more, you want to put in the hours. So just, it just takes over your entire life and is your life. And as much as you try to, you can't compartmentalize it. I think it's just not possible. It, it, it does it is become it becomes kind of the thing that you work on the whole time yeah and and you know you you co-founded the business you know you you are a subject matter expert in the sustainability space you, you've been doing this for i think 15 odd years before Vayu. so what what made you decide to co-found and secondly like what what were you looking for in those co-founders in terms of like their skill set so it's luca who's our cto and myself and with luca and i essentially we have really complementary skill sets and we are really complementary in terms of what, what we're good at and our, what are our areas of strength. And I think that we just got lucky, to be honest. But I think that's worked really well because essentially that's meant that we can cover completely different areas and we don't kind of overlap a lot. And I think that's been super helpful for us because he's kind of the technical co-founder. He focuses a lot on building the product. He's kind of helping marry data science, engineering, and LCA or climate science, and is very, very technical and analytical. So I think that's worked really well. I have a lot more insight on kind of the customer and the customer lens. So we work a little bit closer on kind of product and how we develop that. And then I work a lot more on kind of the communication and the customer side. And because we're quite complementary in terms of skills, it means that we can just do pieces of work quite separately, which also just makes us more efficient because we're not overlapping and having to discuss everything a lot, but rather just being able to go away and do the things that we're meant to do and kind of independently work, which is why I think we've been able to grow the team and scale quite quickly also because we're both not overlapping and having to discuss things all the time. So I think complementary skills is something that's probably one of the hardest things to get right. But if you can, I think it works 
extremely well. Definitely. Yeah, it sounds like you've got that perfect balance and like pairing of skills there. So well done. <laughs> um, in terms of what you would describe as your like founder superpower, like what attribute or characteristic do you have that you feel like is a real strength? Can I ask this a lot? And it's a really tough question to answer, actually. I think um, <laughs> for me, I think it's maybe that I just genuinely like to be around people and I genuinely like to know a lot more about people. So whether that's customers, whether that's our own team, whether that's growing the team, working together with the team, I think that is probably what I would consider my superpower and not and not just saying that I'm a people person, but I genuinely I just enjoy being around people and kind of understanding where they come from and what that means. And I think for me, that has meant I've been able to spend a lot of time understanding our customer, understanding our team, what, what works, what doesn't. And I think that's helped a lot. Yeah, nice, nice. And um, final question on this part was just around, um, like earlier you talked about the facts, uh, the intensity, you're not being able to you know, switch off, there are no dips. Um, and I just wondered, like, how do you personally manage your own like mental health and well-being? Like, what works for you? Yeah, so I, for me, at least personally, I'm able to switch off easier, like in quick short spots. So that's worked really well for me. So even if I'm taking a short 15 minute break or doing something, I'm able to switch off. And this is super personal because I think different things work completely for different people and we all have different personalities. But for me, just doing short things like going for a short walk or taking a coffee break or doing things like that help me kind of readjust and, and switch off. So that's worked, which means the marathon, like I don't stop at a certain time and then I'm done, but rather just intermittently through the day kind of takes short pauses and just make sure I'm, I'm getting the time that I need to kind of reflect or switch off for a little bit. And that works personally for me really well and just makes it much easier to get through kind of the constant work. Yeah. Oh, that sounds incredible. I wish I could do that. <laughs> for me, if I've got something on my mind, I have to deal with it. Otherwise, it just sits there all day like lurking. Um, so having to, yeah, be able to switch off 15, 30 minutes would be, would be, that would be the superpower I would probably choose <laughs> if I could. But I, but I also think that's the kind of, that's the nature of the beast, right? There is no, there, there's never a moment that you won't have like 5,000 things to do and like things that need resolving urgently. And it's just consistently like that. So I think that's also part of the challenge, right? To say, this is what it is. I just need to learn to manage it better. Yeah. And uh, to talk to you about, you know, your views on like growing uh, an impact business, a tech for good business. Um, obviously, you're in the sustainability space. I just wondered from a value perspective, like what have you done internally to make sure the business is, uh, and I know you don't like this term, so maybe use, I'll use the term responsible instead. So, I mean, we're building a climate tech company. So for us, that feels like we need to be living the business that we have. And that doesn't mean that, I mean, that means that everyone needs to be driven to solve the problem that we're solving and not just a technical challenge. So I think that's been really important from kind of an alignment and a team perspective. And then to answer your question specifically around what we're doing differently is we're a remote company. So we're super flexible with kind of hours and when people work and kind of you, we all have optimum times of working and styles of working. And we're super collaborative in the way that it doesn't have to be a prescriptive nine to five job. So we're quite flexible with how people work, where they work, obviously, because we're remote. So if it's cold and it's winter and people want to be in warmer parts of Europe, for example, and work from there. We're super flexible with that as well. And then obviously kind of everything that we do from the servers that we choose to how we manage our merch to how we kind of plan our offsite. So we hire primarily out of Europe so that everyone, if they would like, can take the train to the offsite. 
don't give away a lot of swag or merch. And the ones that we do, we try to be really thoughtful and purposeful about what we do. So with everything that we do, we try to think about kind of climate and who we are as a business, because it's also what drives everyone in our team. So I think it's super important that we are really mindful about what we do and how we do things. It's one of the reasons we don't have an office because we think that works better, the flexibility, the ability to work from everywhere. I'm personally an immigrant, so it gives people the opportunity to go home and spend more time wherever they come from and work from there as well. So it's kind of mental well-being, kind of everything is important because if you're building a climate tech and kind of an impact or responsible business that feels like it should be how you develop the business. Completely agree. I, yeah, I, I yeah, could not agree more. And, and that's why, you know, I, I work in recruitment and I work with founders in the tech for good space. And that's, that's the thing I always see is the pairing of if you're doing good in the world, whether that's education, mental health, climate, if you're running a business that's trying to do good in the world, then you're also going to run a business that's going to do good for the people trying to do good in the world as well. Um, so obviously not surprised, uh, but glad to hear <laughs> that's the case of you as well. Um, and then to dig into your, you know, your point there about, uh, cause my next question was about remote working and, um, you know, what, what you feel were like key things to, to build like a scalable remote working culture. Cause it's actually quite difficult to do. So just, yeah, I wondered what some of the things you do that have worked for you. Yeah, and, and we've got to where we have right now. So we'll see as we kind of scale what challenges come along the way with remote work. But I think what's worked well for us and we really focus on a lot is the purpose. I think with remote working, it's even more important that com- that people who work at the company feel aligned towards what the company does. And in our case, the purpose is pretty apparent and pretty obvious. And we try to hire very much for people that want to solve this problem, as I said. And I think that's worked really well because if you're aligned on purpose, then the remote, and I think people talk a lot about kind of culture and you miss the opportunity to talk to people or meet your colleagues and things like that. I feel like that becomes a little less of an issue because you are aligned. You all want to be solving this problem. You talk about climate, you kind of that connect is already there. So it's kind of one layer in already. So I think we don't struggle with that at all. We obviously do offsites. We try to meet the team. We try to get people together, but we haven't seen that people have struggled with that. But I also think that it's important that you hire people who want to work remotely because I think there are different people and there are some people who don't want to work in a remote environment. And if you try to kind of impose that style of working on people who prefer being in an office and around with people, I don't think that works either. So I think it's super important to be really, really clear in kind of the the hiring and the recruitment process that it is remote, that you don't get to hang out with your colleagues in person because that's mindfully what we're building. We don't have offices because we're not trying to create a hybrid environment. It's very much, it's remote. You work independently, meet a few times a year, but you're going to work independently. And that has pros and cons. And for different people, they need different things. So I think being really, really clear in the hiring process is also quite important so that people understand what they're signing up for. And do you find that having a you know the remote setup also helps you a lot with attracting talent because um, you know, people are actively looking for I guess for remote work and like you said it gives you lots of benefits. It's not for everyone, but do you find then actually when it comes to recruitment that uh, and I don't know like wh- what are the avenues you use for recruitment? Like do you use like LinkedIn? Is it mainly advertising? But you actually get a lot of inbound interest from like quality people, or are you having to go out and do like more active sourcing? So we. Um... So we do less active sourcing. We get a lot of inbound and we do kind of the standard places like LinkedIn, as you said. And what um, we found is remote obviously opens up the talent pool for us because we can hire from anywhere. That means it's a wider pool of people that we can hire into the company. And I think that's meant 
and people can work flexibly and remotely. And I think there tend to be more people who want to work in that environment than not. So we've actually found that people really appreciate working in a remote environment and it's helped a lot. And like I said, the talent pool becomes just so much larger of people that you can access if you can hire out of, well, in our case, anywhere in Europe. But if you can hire out of anywhere in Europe, that means it's a lot bigger than just Berlin. So that means there's just more people that you can hire. And also, even if you hire people in Berlin, for example, which we have, they can then go wherever they want and they're not kind of bound to stay here if they want to move around and do different things, which we've had a few people go back to the countries that they're from. And that just gives them a lot of flexibility. So we've absolutely found that it is massively helpful when it comes to recruitment to be a remote first company. Yeah, definitely. Like, I, I think it's one of the biggest levers that a company can can have. Like, you obviously have to be committed and you have to have like a well-designed remote working culture. But like you said, it just opens you up to such a larger talent pool of people. Whereas, um, yeah, and, and everyone's, every founder's got their different views and there's reasons why people favor like hybrid. But then as soon as you have someone comes in office, wherever that office is based, you're limiting to within that commuting distance and that pool of talent becomes a lot less, lot, lot less smaller. So, um, yeah, I've, uh, with you on, on all of those points. Um, last question about hiring now was just around um, uh, advice. And I wondered like, what's either the best advice you've ever got or the advice you'd give when it comes to hiring as a, like an early stage startup, say like, you know, under 50 people. Yeah. I mean, the advice you hear most often, and it's probably the most accurate is just take the time to make sure people are aligned with the values, with what you're building and have kind of a, even if you're early on, have a pretty robust recruitment process and spend the time with candidates that you need to. And that doesn't mean that need to be that many people interviewing, but I think that has to be a process that gives you enough time with the candidate to make sure it's a fit for both, I think. And I think early stage companies tend to kind of optimize for time and getting things done faster. And that means maybe cutting corners. And I think, the, I mean, you hear it the most, take the time. The early team you select will be the team that gets you through. The early hires you make will be probably the most critical ones you do as a company. And I think all of those things are absolutely on point. And sometimes you hear things a lot and they don't actually the same thing doesn't happen in practice, but I think in this case, it really does. I think the early early team you get in is, is what's going to move the needle massively on what you're able to do as a company. And I think it's absolutely on point to take the time you need to get to know the candidates. Completely. Very, very good advice. And so kind of wrapping things up, um, if anyone is interested in following the value journey, like where's best to follow the, the company on socials? So best to follow us on LinkedIn. We have lots of open roles as well. So anyone interested in working on climate super happy to have them apply as well definitely well look now it's been an absolute pleasure having the show thanks for chatting with me thank you so much for having me craig thanks for listening to today's episode if you've enjoyed it please subscribe share this episode and leave us a review we're just getting started out so it would mean a lot to us this episode was brought to you by craig turner produced by jabril al-sahimi and sponsored by Jobs for Good. Until next time.